Last week, our guest preacher um, and associate pastor candidate, Taylor Worley, um, he started his sermon by telling us about people who have bucket lists and what people look for or may have on that bucket list. Friends, you may not, you may or may not have a bucket list, but we all look to something to do or something to make it through in life. Or perhaps we all look to some goals we may have. Perhaps you're looking uh, for your next job promotion, or perhaps you're looking for the next uh, career change, or perhaps you're looking to finish school and start a path of life, to, to settle in into a direction. Perhaps if you're a student, you are still wondering what you're going to major on and what exactly you will pursue, and you're thinking and you're looking forward to do something. Uh, perhaps you are not thinking so much far ahead about future plans. Perhaps you're in the midst of a crisis and you're just looking to make it through this season of life. And there are challenges you are, you are faced with and you just don't know how you will make it through even this next week. We're all looking to something. It may not be a, a bucket list item, but we're all looking to, to something. And this morning... I want to encourage us through God's word to look away from the challenges of life, to look away from the opportunities of life, to look away even from the hopes you may have in this life, and to look to something else. As a song we have just sung, Knowing You, um, tells us about redirecting our lives from anything that this world can either offer us or challenges, challenges with, to look to something else, and that something else would be look to God, to behold God. This morning, I encourage you to open God's Word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 33, as we will read God's Word from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to grab a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you, our pew Bibles you may find our passage on page number 593. Uh, we are currently going through the book of Isaiah, and uh, we are in the third section of this book. This morning we are looking at the, the, a particular passage that gives a warning uh, to God's people. Let's look at this passage that draws our attention to look to something else than we have been used to before, to look to God. God's word this morning for our congregation says the following. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as a caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. 
abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler seizes. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will lift up myself. Now I will, I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are, cut off, are far off what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppression, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord, in majesty, will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. Then pray, and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking the Lord to speak to our hearts? Father, we are privileged to hear from you. We are privileged to hear your word in our own language. We're privileged to still be here and hear freely what you have to say to us. Would you speak to our hearts through the preaching of your word, we pray, for the glory of your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. 
Amen. Well, friends, we are in the third major section of the book of Isaiah, a section that spans from chapter 28 to chapter 39. Notice that our chapter that we read this morning begins with the word ah. This word is an indicator in this section that we are dealing with another message of warning. We have seen this word five times so far in this third section of Isaiah. We've seen it in chapter 28, in chapter 29, and we've seen it in chapter 31 as well. In this third section of Isaiah, the previous messages of warnings have all been spoken to God's people and against God's people. Today, in the sixth message of warning, uh, we see it given again, and it is given at the very beginning of... Um, I'm sorry, the, the first five messages of warning have been given at the very beginning of Hez King Hezekiah's reign. Uh, this one that we have now, the sixth message of warning, is given after Assyria invaded Judah. The historical situation behind this message, the sixth message of warning, uh, is given in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 18, verses 13 to 16. And I want to read those verses. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read those verses to give us the context of what is happening with the people of Judah when this sixth message of warning is received. Here's what 2 Kings 18 tells us. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And King Hezekiah, uh, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. King Hezekiah is in trouble. Assyria has finally invaded Judah. Friends, from the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, we have been told that this will happen. We are now at a place in the book where Assyria is now invading the people of God. And King Hezekiah thought that he could buy himself out of this mess by paying Sennacherib, king of Assyria, whatever tribute the Assyrian king would impose. Prior to this moment, um, Hezekiah relied on Egypt's help to shake off the yoke of Assyria. If you remember, the, very, the first five messages of woes have been all geared towards rebuking Israel and rebuking Judah for relying on Egypt to get out of trouble. 
14 years earlier, in the very first year of King Hezekiah, King Hezekiah tried to, to rely on Egypt and tried to shake off the tribute from, king, from the king of Assyria. But 14 years later, we find out that Egypt has been of no help. And Assyria is now invading Judah, and King Hezekiah is very desperate. And he's so desperate that now he thinks of appealing to the king of Assyria and trying to make a peace treaty with him by being willing to pay whatever tribute the king of Assyria imposed. And the tribute that the king uh, Hezekiah has paid is not only money from his own treasury, but he has given the money of the Lord as well. And he has stripped off even the gold of the, of the doors of the temple. In other words, King Hezekiah is using the Lord's money to try to pay himself out of this threat. But verse 7 in our passage reveals that this last political move that King Hezekiah attempted did not work either. Look at verse 7. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. In verse 9, covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. The mighty men that Hezekiah sent to Sennacherib to pay the tribute and to make a peace treaty gave Hezekiah some hope that he could use diplomacy. But king, the king of Assyria took the money, made the peace treaty, but once he received the money, he did not honor the peace treaty. He still came against Judah even after Hezekiah paid him a heavy price, relying on diplomacy while ignoring God proved to be useless. In this context of great distress, of being betrayed, of being utterly hopeless, of being at the end of their rope, God sends his people another message of warning. This is a context in which we have this message. But there's something utterly shocking and surprising about this last message. The warning, the ah, is not against God's people. Even though they messed up once again and big time. This message of warning is against the enemies of God's people. And in response to this great news, Isaiah holds on for his people a vision of the God on whom they can call even in the 11th hour. And if we keep reading chapter 36 through 38, to which hopefully we'll get to in the next few weeks, King Hezekiah will finally turn to the Lord with his heart fully dependent upon the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly when King Hezekiah 
has fully turned his heart to the Lord. But it's possible that this message, this sixth message of warning, in chapter 33, contributed to turning the king's heart. Friends, I pray that it will have the same effect for us today. Isaiah tells them how they should behold God. When it's the 11th hour, when everything has run out, how to behold God. And this passage teaches us three ways in which we can behold God. Three ways to behold God. Here's the first way. Behold God. He's able to destroy the invincible. Behold God. He's able to destroy the invincible. In the first nine verses of chapter 33, we, we see the effects of Hezekiah's failed attempts. His attempts to rely on diplomatic tactics to secure a peace treaty with Assyria did not work. In verse 9, we see more descriptions of what has happened after the peace treaty did not work. In verse 9, the land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now these places, you'll find them again in chapter 35. But for now, in chapter 33, these places were important symbols for God's people. Lebanon represented that which is permanent, but now has become confounded and withers away. Sharon has been known for its beauty and now has become desolate like a desert. Bashan and Carmel have been very fertile places in Israel, but now they are described as lacking even the leaves on the trees. Friends, this is the outcome of, of looking to the world for solutions to our problems and not consulting the Lord. Sin and rebellion leaves us empty and desolate. It promises much, but in the end, it betrays us. It leaves us worse off. And the promises of sin are deceptive. They promise much in the beginning, but they leave us with so little in the end. It's against this background of being betrayed by the king of Assyria and of being attacked by him that God sends this final message of woe. Look at verse 1. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor, whom none has betrayed. This is why Assyria is being described here as a traitor. They've been betraying everybody else. And so far, nobody has been able to betray them. God says to them, when you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Hezekiah sought to make a pact with this invincible enemy called Assyria. And God tells his people that this invincible enemy will be destroyed. God's people should have not given in and submit to what seemed to be impossible to conquer. Friend, I wonder if you have been in situations when it seemed that the enemy is invincible. In such moments, one of the strategies of the enemy is to intimidate us and to make us think that our only option is to surrender and to give up. 
But God reminds his people that what seems impossible and invincible to them is going to be destroyed. Now, what is invincible may still cause us great damage in the here and now. Just as Assyria caused a lot of desolation in Judah. But that desolation is not the end. God promised to deal with that which was invincible. Friends, I, uh, I grew up in Romania under the communist regime. And um, I don't remember much about how life was at that time. I was 10 when the Iron Curtain fell down. But I remember and I hear my parents and people of, uh, older than me who remember those times well. I remember them saying and speaking about those days and the impressions they had about the communist regime. It seemed to them invincible. It seemed insurmountable. That no one could bring it down. And yet, the Lord did bring it down. And the Lord used a pastor to spark up a flame that eventually brought it down. No regime, no system, no enemy is invincible. The Lord can bring anything down. And when God reveals this to his people, when God reveals what he will do to their enemies, it's as if that vision of the future instills faith in his people and they call out to God. And look at verse 2. Look at how God's people respond after hearing what God will do to their enemies. Behold God, point number 2, call on him for rescue. If point, one, point number one show that, behold God, he can destroy the invincible. Point two is call on him for rescue. In verses two through six, God's people respond to God and call out on him to rescue them. Look at the prayer that God's people lift up to God in verse two. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in the time of trouble. Now notice how this prayer describes the people who pray it. Look at verse 2 again. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Friends, this is what the Lord has been calling his people from prior parts of the book of Isaiah. Wait on the Lord. Don't go ahead with your plans. Wait on the Lord. And finally, this is the first time in the book of Isaiah where the people of God say, Lord, we are ready to wait on you. Be gracious to us. Finally, the people of God respond in this way. The, the word for we wait for you can also be translated, we long for you. This waiting, I love how Alec Motier, one of the commentators on the book of Isaiah says, this waiting is a mark of the remnant, combining the restfulness of waiting with a confidence of sure expectation. Friend, when you ask the Lord to be gracious to you, do you wait for him? 
if we ask God to be gracious to us, but then we don't wait for him, it's as if we ask the Lord to intervene, to get us out of trouble, but then we run away from his very intervention, and we don't wait for his intervention. It's important to see not only what the people ask of God, but how they describe themselves when they ask the Lord to be gracious to them. They ask the Lord to be gracious to them while declaring, we're waiting for you. The people who call on the Lord to be gracious to them not only wait for the Lord, but they make the Lord their arm. Notice what they say. Lord, be our arm every morning. Now, what does this picture mean? What does it mean when the people of Israel said, Lord, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Well, let me, let me try to help us think about this picture a little more. How many things can you do without using your arm? Can you eat? Can you drive? Can you work? Can you text? Can you dress up? Now put yourself in the, in, the, in the shoes of the people of Judah when they make this request. They're faced with Assyria at their doorsteps. Assyria has already invaded Judah. Could they protect themselves and battle without their arms? No. So the request they have of the Lord is that the Lord would be their defender, their strength, that the Lord would be the means of accomplishing anything that they need. In this request, the people of Judah are giving up, relying on their own arms. They're asking the Lord to be their arm, not just once, but every morning. Friends, sometimes the hardest battle we face in our lives is simply to let the Lord take over. To say to the Lord, not my will, but yours. When Isaiah and the people of Judah pray this prayer, they're finally turning their own self-defense to the Lord and say, Lord, you take over. You be our arm every morning. Friends, for some this is very hard still because we want to be our arm. Judah got to see where it leads to be their arm. Judah got to see where all this leads. It leads to their heroes crying in the streets. It leads to nowhere to have their own arms, their own strength, their own heroes lead in the battle. Same here this morning, we are seeing that the people of Judah want to ask the Lord, Lord, you be our arm every morning. You be our salvation in the time of trouble. Friend, when you wake up every morning, who do you turn to? Do you turn to your phone first to check your email, to check the news? Do you turn to your plans to see what you have to do? Is there a place in your morning routine when you turn to the Lord 
Friends, when you turn to the Lord in prayer at the beginning of the day, it is another say, another form of saying, Lord, be our arm in all that's going on today. Everything I have to do, from dressing up to eating, to communicating, to working, you be our arm. Notice what the people who cry out to God say about God in verse 3. They acknowledge that when God lifts himself up, the nations are scattered. Verse 3. And at the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. Friends, notice what this verse says about God. All that God needs to do in order to scatter the nations is to lift himself up. No need of force. No need of battle. Merely the act of lifting up, of standing up, is enough to scatter the nations. Friends, this is why we seek to exalt the Lord. This is why we seek to praise Him, to lift Him up in our thoughts, in our minds, in our hearts. When God is lifted up, His enemies scatter when our fears intimidate us, one of the greatest strategies that we can do uh, to fight our fears is to lift up the name of God in our minds and in our prayers. Focusing on exalting God, on seeing Him in His majesty. That's why in our evening prayer service, we have made it a point to start every prayer service, not with requests, not even with thanksgiving, but with praise and adoration. We, went to model, we want to model to all our members the importance of beginning to approach God by lifting Him up, by praising Him, so that in our minds we see God exalted, high, and lifted up. The people in this passage tell us that for the nations to scatter, all that is needed is for God to be lifted up. In verse 4, we see not only that the nations scatter when God is lifted up, but also that there's a gathering of the spoil. Look at verse 4. And your spoil is gathered as a caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. Now the spoil that, that, that Isaiah talks about is a spoil of war. This spoil is only enjoyed after the battle has been fought and after the battle has been won. There's no spoil of war without the battle being won. And here we see the spoil, but we see no battle. And yet there's such an ab abundant spoil. Now hold on to this thought. There's an abundant spoil, and yet there's no battle. And God's people are going to enjoy the spoil, even though there's no battle. Hold that thought. Because it will be exactly what Judah will experience with Assyria when God will give them the spoil of victory without Israel ever battling for it. Just wait until chapter 36, 37, and 38. Well, friends, this is a pattern that God will use for a much greater battle. 
the much greater battle that God promises to battle for his people is not against Assyria. It's the battle against sin. It's the battle against rebellion. It is the battle against the guilt that they have incurred because of their sin and rebellion. And God promises to give his people the spoil of victory without them battling for that. Oh, friends, the greatest battle that we are engaged in is the battle against Satan. It's a battle against the kingdom of darkness. It's a, it's a battle against the deception that Satan and darkness have, have brought about us and against us. And the Lord's means of, of, and his plans is simply this. I will battle against Satan. I will send my son, my only son. He will take on flesh. He will live the life that you have never been able to live. And he will die the death that you deserve. And in his death, he will pay the guilt that your rebellion has incurred. And three days later, he will be risen from the dead. I will raise him from the dead on your behalf. And he will purchase life. And he will purchase salvation. And he will purchase the forgiveness of your sins. And he will purchase eternal life. And all these benefits I will give to you so that you enjoy it as a spoil of the battle won. And you will not have to even move your finger. It will all be accomplished on your behalf. If you turn away from your sin and trust that God is able to win the spoil, to win the battle, and to give the spoil of victory for all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Oh, friends, this is the promise of the gospel. This is the, the benefits that the gospel gives us. This is what God promises. So what we see here in, in, this, in this battle, in this promise that God's people declare to the Lord, we see a pattern of what God will do in a much greater battle. Oh, friends, if you're here this morning, if you're not a Christian, you have never heard of, of the gospel or the call of the gospel to repent and trust in Christ, oh, friends, I pray that you would turn to the Lord, return to Him, if you'd like to know more what that means, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. In verses 5 and 6, we see what the spoil includes more specifically. When God lifts himself up and he's exalted, notice what he brings to his people. Look at six benefits in, this, in, chapter, in, um, in verses 5 and 6. Justice, righteousness, stability, salvation, wisdom, knowledge, and then to wrap all these are six benefits. And then to wrap it all together, the, the seventh one is the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. Friends, I wonder if you have this confidence and look to the Lord for these benefits. Justice and righteousness, stability and salvation, wisdom and knowledge? Or do you try to be just and righteous on your own, in your own terms? Do you try to build up stability on your own for your life? Do you seek on your own to get out of your mess? Do you seek wisdom and knowledge on your own? 
Even the fear of the Lord is not something that we work up on our own, but it is God's gift to us. Dear beloved, the heart who is waiting on the Lord does not have time for self-pity. The heart that is waiting on the Lord focuses on seeing the Lord exalted and lifted up, and it believes that the Lord is the source of all the benefits that we need. Is this how you wait on the Lord? Seeing Him higher than your enemies, higher than your troubles, higher than your mess, higher than your needs? For some of us, we don't see the Lord this high because our eyes are still focused on our needs, on our mess. We see our enemies higher than the Lord. We see our troubles higher than the Lord. And in those situations, we are tempted to make a pact with our own troubles and to seek to give in to our own troubles and look to them for our solution, much like Hezekiah looked to the king of Assyria. This text shows us how to call on the Lord to rescue us. Turn to God and ask Him to be gracious. But don't be hurried through that request. Instead, wait on the Lord, making Him your arm and seeing Him high and exalted and as the one who has fought the battle to bring us the benefits of His redemption. Next week, by God's grace, we will look at the second part of this message on how the Lord is ready to respond to the request of His people. But for now, dear friends, we want to encourage one another and look at the Lord. Behold the Lord. He is able to destroy the invincible. And behold the Lord. Call on Him for rescue. By God's grace, next week we'll look at how the Lord will respond. Would you join with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, You have been so gracious to us. And you have shown your grace to your people. When they needed and when they deserved another message of warning because of their failures and disappointments and their disobedience and rebellion, you were gracious to give them a message of reminding them that you will destroy their enemies by which they have been intimidated. Father, thank you for the faith that your remnant people have had, which they have shown in this passage, in which their hearts have turned to you. Father, help us to know how to behold you with hearts who are ready to wait on you. Help us to know how to trust in you Help us to know how to turn to you. Help us to know how to see you exalted and lifted up, confident that you are the God who will win the battle for us, confident that you are the God who is able to bring us a spoil of, of, of the victory. Father, help us to turn to you and help us to live in that victory for the sake of the glory of Christ. Father, before your throne, 
we want to turn to you with hearts ready to exalt you and to wait for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.